so what does a great life look like then? And I started to think, well, it's, it's spending time with the people I really care about, being grateful for the things I have, you know, being useful to others, still li living with purpose. And then the next question is, well, why aren't I doing everything I can to live that way right now? And that was a harder question for me to answer. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and influential guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and Zestful Ager. And if you like this podcast, you'll love my companion course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You'll have access to what I've learned from being a psychotherapist for 30 years and the latest research on what habits really matter and contribute to vibrant aging. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. Last week, we spoke with Stacy Feintuck of The Widow Wears Pink and Living the Second Act. Stacy talked about finding inner strength she didn't know she had when her husband died suddenly at age 48. She also tells some very funny stories about hot yoga, and we, we do get laughing. Next week, we'll be speaking with Jillian Walness Perry, who's the co-founder of the Anne Frank Trust UK and the author of the very comprehensive book, The Legacy of Anne Frank. She's a fierce advocate for challenging prejudice and hatred throughout the world. I promise you will be moved by that interview. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky beside me, my coffee in my hand, so let's begin. Today we're speaking with John Leyland, who's a reporter at the New York Times, where he wrote a year-long series that became the basis for his new book, Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year among the oldest old. The book is a New York Times book review editor's choice, and Jane Brody called it inspired and inspiring. Welcome to the show, John. Oh, thanks, Nicole. I'm happy to be here. Tell me a little bit about why this book is different. It's certainly not a, a how-to on that, that we're seeing a lot of how to live a longer life. Can you talk a little bit about what your mission was in writing it? My mission was very simple. I wanted to stay connected with the people that I had written about in the New York Times, and I no longer had an excuse to stay uh, so connected to them. So I needed an excuse, and this was perfect. But what I wanted to do was I, I'd spent a year writing about them in the paper, and six people, very different from one another, different in age and race and class, not age so much, but, but race and class and health status and mobility. And uh, at the end of the year, I realized that I had been in some very powerful but subtle ways changed by my experience with them. I felt more optimistic about life. I, was able to deal with the ups and downs of my days uh, more comfortably. And, and I realized that I had learned all these skills from spending this time with people who just 
and live long enough to know something about life. So the book is my attempt to distill the lessons I learned from them uh, for for people of any age. We can I'm I'll be 60 in a week and a half or so, and these lessons have greatly improved and changed my life. And I think they could do the same for people 30 years younger than me or 30 years older. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I mean, you've been a reporter for a long time. Is this an unusual experience for you being so profoundly changed by um, your reporting? Oh, yeah, this is a one of a kind experience for me. And I really never expected it. I'm very, very good at detaching myself and my emotional needs and my opinions and values from the stories that I write. And it's, it's a little scary sometimes because I feel kind of autistic about this because how is it we're able to detach from people who are often in difficult situations and in this case i found i wasn't able to do that and at a certain point i didn't want to do that anymore i was getting involved in their lives they were affecting me in ways that i didn't seek but entirely for the better you know people often would say to me doesn't it get depressing spending all that time with older people including my mother who's 90 uh, would say that. And I would always say, well, no, it's kind of the opposite. You know, I, what I'm learning about is, you know, resilience and how to deal with loss and how to find joy in what you can still do rather than, than uh, you know, stewing over the things you can't do anymore. So, you know, it's really interesting to me, you know, I'm a psychotherapist, so I, I look for these sort of patterns and, and things that come together, sort of the confluence of, of experience. And I'm wondering whether if you had done this 20, 25 years earlier, it would have had the same kind of impact. It's quite possible it wouldn't have, because one of the things I was seeking for uh, as I was doing this reporting was ways to deal with my own mother, who's having a really difficult time getting older. She says, you know, if you want to know what old age is like, it stinks. Mm -hmm. So that was always a question I had going in. And I, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have had that question about her. And certainly I can see my own aging more clearly now than I would have been able to 20 years ago. And I'm able to make that connection. Well, what does this have to do with me? So it kind of came along at just the right time for you, and you were also, and you're very open about it in the book, experiencing your own sort of painful transition, um, a marriage ending. And, you know, my thought is that possibly you were kind of in, in a place to be more open to these kind of lessons. Do you think that's possible? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I had to rethink of you know, what was my role in the world anymore? It wasn't going to be husband and father in the way it was when I was turned 50, say. I'm just about to turn 60, as I mentioned. Uh, so now I needed to find a different role. What did I want out of my relationship with people? What did I want uh, in terms of my own goals in life? What were my day-to-day -day satisfactions? So I was rethinking them at the time. And I would say that that's a very healthy thing for us to do at any age. Mm -hmm. What is it? What? What's the life we're leading? What's the life we want to lead? What's what's creating the gap between the two? 
Could you talk about this really interesting concept? I, I hadn't heard it put quite this way, and, and you, you'll uh, remind me of the term, but it was like you're, you're going backwards and saying, where do I want to go? You, you kind of uh, have uh, a point here, and then you say, you, you work yourself back and say, where do I want to be? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I do. And okay, I, and help me a- here. It's a term out of chess. It comes. Yes. It's, it's used in a lot of different uh, settings, but but chess is where I've encountered it, and it's called regression analysis. Thank you. And you <laughs> you start with the end of a chess game. You set up the pieces in the yes. way you would like when there's only three or four pieces on the board, and then you work backwards and say, "This is an advantageous p- position for me. How would I get here? One move back, six moves back, twelve moves back, instead of starting with a full chessboard that's set mm-hmm. up and there's you know, 82 million possible moves you can make to right. start with just a few pieces and say, okay, and, and how I apply this is say, okay, at the end of life, what does a great life look like at, say, 95 or whatever our last years are going to be? You know, chances are we are not that person you see on the morning news jumping out of airplanes and running marathons. We'll, we'll probably, at, toward those late years, have some level of disability or limited ability and we'll have lost people that we care about. So what does a great life look like then? And I started to think, well, it's it's spending time with the people I really care about, being grateful for the things I have, you know, being useful to others, still li- living with purpose. And then the next question is, well, why aren't I doing everything I can to live that way right now? Mm-hmm. And that was a harder question for me to answer because there was no excuse not to do it. So why aren't I spending as much time as I can among the people that I care about and that care about me? instead of worrying about other people. So you're so practical and you're really clarifying. You're taking this time in life to stop and and do an analysis. You're you're doing an assessment of your life's goals. That's right. And it doesn't require, you know, complicated theories. It's just a step back and say, Mm -hmm. well what is it we want? And we're all capable of doing that. Some of us have a lot of obstacles that are preventing us from getting there or hindering us from getting where we think we'd like to go. Well, how do we align where we want to go with what our capabilities are? Mm-hmm. Hey, Sesphalagers. Last year, I attended the International Federation on Aging's Global Conference in Toronto, and they've announced the 15th Global Conference on Aging for Niagara Falls, Ontario, from November 1st through 3rd, 2020. Zestful Aging Podcast is a proud partner for this conference, and I encourage you to all consider attending. The conference features prominent experts presenting and discussing critical issues within the field of aging. So head on over to ifa2020.org to learn more. And I hope to see you in Niagara Falls in November. Will you talk a little bit about, give us some stories for for those of us who haven't read your book yet. Give us some stories that really stand out in your mind as just so memorable for you. You you called it subtle but profound. Oh, yeah. I think the guy who first won my heart was Fred Jones. Fred Fred was 87 when I met him, living alone in a walk-up apartment, up two flights of stairs. and He's losing two toes to gangrene. His daughter's dying of stage four breast cancer. Uh, 
So this is, this is the kind of person we write about, the story we tell when we talk about aging. It's a story about you know, becoming socially isolated and the story of loss and uh, limited mobility. And when I asked Fred about his life, the story he told was much different. You know, Fred would I asked Fred what was the happiest time of his life, and Fred just said, right now. And Fred was so much fun. Fred was, Fred was a total player. Fred had six kids by four women, and he had a dirty cornball, dirty joke every time we talked to him and sing like Billy Eckstein. And uh, the first time I went to see Fred, we went to the supermarket and he cruised the cashiers, you know, to see who was the prettiest. And so that was Fred. And there were all these reasons for Fred no longer to tell his story that way, but that's how he was telling it. And that's how he was getting through the day. And Fred was much happier with the way he was in his days than I was dealing with mine, or most of the people that I was that I know who are much younger were getting through their days. So, what was, what was Fred's secret? And it wasn't just having a dirty mind, because half the people I know have dirty minds, but it was that idea that I can tell the story of who I am. I'm not defined by this infection in my foot. I'm not defined by the real sadness of seeing my daughter's health decline, you know, I get to create the story of how my life fits into those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talked about uh, having a bit of an ethical dilemma with Fred, um, that you, you said, you know, I know I'm a reporter, but I'm still going to change his light bulbs because he can't reach them. Can yeah. you talk about that moment when you decided, look, I can do this, I can help this guy? What was that like? As I mentioned, I'm pretty good at that bit of detaching. As a reporter, you get to an older person's house and they're in the dark because they can't change their light bulbs. That is like the richest material. There's your story right there. And then you write about them, you show Fred in the dark, and then you leave and you know that things are going to go even more get even more difficult for him. As a newspaper reporter, that's a classic way of working. I found I couldn't bring myself to do that. I was going to get up on a ladder and change Fred's light bulbs, do the thing that he couldn't do. And I had to, you know, cop to it to the readers of the New York Times. I had to say, look, you know, I know I'm not supposed to break that line, but I really had to do it in this case. And no, no one, I have to say, no one ever held it against me for doing it. And, and in fact, one of the things that was really interesting to me was that when I was uh, so transparent about my actions, people actually were appreciative of that. Mm -hmm. And did they cop up to some of their own actions? I, I didn't because I'm talking about like civilians now, regular yeah, reader, yeah, readers, yeah. readers of the paper who, yeah. who don't have those same kind of constrictions on them that they're supposed to let things happen in front of them and not uh, yeah, you know, intrude on them. You made it really interesting observations about Fred, and if I'm remembering correctly, he was from um, some poverty in the South, and you made some observations about what his life must have been like in terms of racism and other obstacles, and and just your wonder at, here's a guy who, you know, he's he can barely make it up the stairs, he's changing his sock because it's you know, got blood on it from these toes and that he's still just, you know, he's finding a way 
to still be sassy and cheerful and joke with you. It's it's really kind of miraculous for, for most of us to see that. It is miraculous, but if we can step back, we can say that's the most ordinary thing we can do, right? That's something that we're all capable of doing. If he, if Fred had, you know, been in this distress and he had done quantum physics, you might just say, well, you know, I can't really do that. I can't do quantum physics. I'm just not trained in that. But Fred was just taking control of the story of his life, just taking a step back. Uh, he did it. Part, part of Fred's secret was he would say, uh, I wake up every morning and say, thank God for another day on my way to 110. And it was just that process. And, and as, as a psychotherapist, you know the power that a regular practice of gratitude mm-hmm. has on our lives, right? Yeah. With, there's decades of research on this, people who, mm-hmm. who practice gratitude, even in a very self-conscious, mechanical way, they sleep better, they become more optimistic about the future, they say they have a greater sense of well-being, they get a lower blood pressure, better immune function, less inflammation. You know, it just has this magical effect on you. And if there were a pill that we could take to do that, <laughs> gosh, we would all want that in a hurry or we'd invest our life savings in the manufacturer. Yeah. But, we, but we can do it. And, and Fred showed me how to do, that we could all do it in the time it takes to brush your teeth in the morning. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. And uh, you were talking about Emmons' work and just how you know scientific this is. We can really see in a in a scan uh, the differences. And what people will say to me is they just keep forgetting, right? That they know they should and they know it's good for them, but it's just something that you know it's like it gets lost in the in the daily uh grind is there a way that you remind yourself to stay in a state of gratitude yes i would say there is and it it kind of becomes natural over time we it has for me at least and for the research i've seen it kind of started in a mechanical way do you make that point to say, just in the same way people might uh, observe their faith on a, the same day every every week, right? They'll go to services mm-hmm. community on Saturday or Sunday or whatever day a week they, they go. I started off like that. I said, well, I'm just going to make it a point to just get up in the morning before the world pulls at me and just figure out what it is I'm grateful for. Just one thing, because mm-hmm. there's always something could be, you know, in Fred's case, it's just waking up mm-hmm. and, and seeing that the world was good. And I could do that. So I started to do that. And then, you know, it, it starts as a practice and then it has to become a routine. And from there it becomes a habit. And once it's a habit, it becomes invisible. We just do it. We just, something happens to us, something bad happens. And we, we you know, it knocks us to the left, and then we remind ourselves that, gosh, we have all this stuff to be grateful for. Mm. And in time, either a short time or a long time, it kind of gets us back to the center. Mm. Uh, you know, when we are experiencing horrible losses, you know, bad things happen to people, really hard things happen to people. Mm. I'm not saying you should say, well, I'm good. <laughs> at least it's not raining. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. All I'm saying is that we do have 
in your in the course of your day, you're going to have high points and low points. And if we can remember that there are these high points and that there are things to be grateful for, uh, as as we take our breath each morning, as we take our breath each afternoon, mm-hmm. then when those setbacks come, they are going to still knock you down on your knees, but maybe not quite so far, and maybe uh, you won't be down there for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of, I think you're, you're saying almost that's your default, right? That things are, they, they push us around during the day. But if you can make sort of uh, gratitude as your, as your home base, and say, yes, and. Yes. And, 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 and what, what I noted, too, is that uh, sometimes it can be pretty quirky. It's not just the roof over my head, right? It's not just the food on my table. No, it can be a memory, it can be a person in your life, it can be anything. It's great. It's, it's as personal to you. And because there's 365 days in the year, if you're going to do it every day, you're going to need to come up with like raisin bread is going to be like day 429. <laughs> you know, there's going to be some small things. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it doesn't, doesn't make the pain of our losses go away. But it helps us put that pain in a different perspective and say, mm-hmm. we're supposed to experience that pain. That's why we have these, you know, our, our brains are set up that way and our bodies are set up that way. We're supposed to experience that, but how do we, how do we understand it in different ways? How do we understand that that loss and that pain has meaning because it shows us things about ourselves, including what we're capable of, of uh, enduring? Mm-hmm. Mm. So where are your your six people now? Are you you still keep in contact with them? Well, I did the series in 2015. So I started to meet them, I guess, maybe some of them at the end of 2014 and some in the beginning of 2015. I started with six men, uh, six people, three men, three women. And the three men all died. The mm-hmm. two of the men, including Fred and John Sorensen, who was a gay man who missed his partner of 16 years. Mm-hmm. They died in 2016. And then the last of the three men, Jonas Meckes, who's an avant-garde filmmaker, uh, died in January. And he was, he was 96. He was the oldest among them. And he, he was the one I thought would be the most long-lived. But life has its own way of, of, of having its will. Mm-hmm. And the women? The, I'm sorry, the three women, Ruth Willig, Ping Wong, and Helen Moses, are all, I'm happy to say, still alive, and I'm still in touch with them. Uh, Ruth Willig, I know, is at the New Jersey shore with her two daughters right now, and I hope they're having a great time. Mm. It's their you know, big annual event, and I know Ruth looks forward to it. Ruth is 95. She'll be 96 in the fall. And uh, Helen Moses is living in the nursing home in uh the Bronx, and she, the part of the book and part of the, the series is his kind of on again, off again wedding plans that she has with the man next door, man in the room next door at the nursing home, mm-hmm. How, Howie Zimmer, and this <laughs> yeah. this soap opera of Helen and Howie is just the best soap opera. And they oh. find they finally had a commitment ceremony in February, so that's great. And then Ping Wong is uh, she started to develop. Uh, dementia to a level that she wasn't safe in her own home anymore. Mm-hmm. And so she's now in a nursing home in New Jersey near her daughter. You, you 
have some observations about what makes a partnership work. And I think you used Howie um, uh, sort of as an example of this um, sort of surprising love affair. And you, you drew some conclusions about what we need to do to make our partnerships uh, more, um, I don't know, loving or um, happier. What was so interesting to me about Howie and, and Helen, I really, when I set out to cast for people I wanted and uh, people who had met and formed a love affair, love relationship late in life, because I felt I know the story of the 60 year, 70 year marriage, and the couple stays together, and they become the same person or, or whatever. I felt like I knew that story, mm -hmm. but I didn't know the story of people who, you know, having nursed a spouse uh, to their death and, and who has the courage to love again mm -hmm. at late in life, knowing you can't do it very long and that one of you is gonna, gonna outlive the other. So Helen and Howie were kind of perfect for that. And Helen is older than Howie, but Howie had a brain injury that made him a lot slower than she is. And I would sometimes wonder what Helen got out of the relationship. And we talked one day and Helen said, I take care of him because he's an only child and he had nobody. And then when his mother and father died, he really had nobody except me. I try to be everything to him. I think that I am. And it just floored me. You know, I'm 94 years old. Helen couldn't do so many things she'd once done, but she could still be everything to Howie, to another human being. You know, that's just kind of amazing to me. And you think about what's a worthwhile life, and that's it. So part of what she t told me was to appreciate the people who let us help them, mm -hmm. and also to let other people help us, because they, you know, they benefit from that. In, in a helping situation, both partners should see themselves as benefiting from it, not thinking about it as an entirely one-way relationship. Mm -hmm. So did that influence your relationship and how you want to be in your partnership? Both in my partnership and in my relationship with my mother. I've come to understand that the things I do for my mother benefit me as much as they do her. Oh, and that wow. when there are opportunities for my mother to be helpful to me, to be helpful to uh, her grandchildren, not to say, oh, you know, I can take care of that. It's easy. Let me do it. Uh, you know, which we we tend to do with our elders, right? We say, oh, no, mom, that's too much work for you. Let me do it. I see. Instead of st recognizing that the, the effort it's going to take your mother to do that thing for you or to do that thing for her grandchildren or if it's your father or whoever it is, you know, they're going to benefit from knowing that they're able to be useful to another person in the way that Helen was useful to Howie. That that's an important part of being human is the desire to be important and useful. Yeah, none of us wants to feel useless. This is what my mother would always say to me. She said, you know, I spent the first quarter of my life growing up and getting an education and then the next half of it working and raising a family. And now the last quarter of it, I don't feel a purpose anymore. I'm not needed in the way that I used to be. I feel useless. Society doesn't need me anymore. And, you know, I, to the extent that I can, I try to persuade her that, you know, we all still need her and she gives us what she always gave us. You know, she gives us love. She doesn't do some of the things that she'd once been able to do for us. But that was never what we really got out of her. You know, that was never what we benefited most from. It's, it's her love. Mm 
and so it's I'm not, not sure that I've fully convinced you of this, but it's an ongoing project for both of us. It's so rich. There's so many lessons here. And we don't listen to them, right? This is one of the things about our society. Do we listen to older people? No. You know, for most of human history, when societies, when cultures wanted to know the answers to important questions, who did they turn to? Their eldest members. And now we have Google for that. <laughs> you know, and Google does a lot of things. It's amazing, but it can't can't tell you certain things. It, it can't tell you how to get old because it doesn't know what it's like to get old. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't give us any wisdom. <laughs> no, that's not its job. Facts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've really enjoyed reading the book, John, and I've read a lot of books on aging, as you can imagine, and this is very different. It has a very different feel. And um, I agree with Jane that it really is inspiring. Um, I, I want to ask you where people can find it. It's on, uh, there's a, I have a webpage, johnlelandauthor.com, which okay. is, I'll admit to being quite a bad webpage. But the easiest <laughs> place to get it is through uh, Amazon. Really. Okay. And the book, again, is Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old. John, you'll meet, you, yeah? sorry, I said, you'll meet six really interesting people uh -huh. who all have a little bit, of, all figured out a little bit of the puzzle and they'll share it with you and it, it'll be time well spent. Yeah, and your love comes through. It's 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 a wonderful read. So, um, John Leyland, author L E L A N D author dot com. Thanks so much for spending time with me this morning. Oh, thanks so much, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. 
Next week, we'll be speaking with Jillian Walness Perry, who's the co-founder of the Anne Frank Trust UK and the author of the very comprehensive book, The Legacy of Anne Frank. She's a fierce advocate for challenging prejudice and hatred throughout the world. I promise you will be moved by that interview. See you then.